Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There are probably a number of things that um, cause heightened levels of anxiety in us. For me, it's heights. Uh, I, I think probably the, uh, the anxiety meter wouldn't be high enough to register what I was feeling that day a number of years ago when I found myself on the second level of the Eiffel Tower, looking out and feeling like, what am I thinking, why am I here? Uh, I had the same feeling uh, a couple of days later when we were in that, the beautiful church, Sacre-Cœur in Paris, and up in the very highest dome of that facility and asking myself, why am I doing this? And you don't even want to think about what I was going through when I went up to the Space Needle in Seattle before that. I just, I even standing in the Nielsen Center of the gym up at the college, and I'm looking over, standing by the railing, I can feel my knees begin to get weak and my legs get weak. There's just this inner sense of anxiety that comes when I get in high places. And I suspect that you have things like that in your own life. But it's not just about those sort of psychological anxieties. I mean, there are real threats that come to us that raise our levels of anxiety. I can imagine the anxiety you might feel if you woke up in the morning and you were in a cage with a hungry lion. Or, or if, you were, if you found yourself innocently walking into a, a, a gun battle in some place where you lived. This, these are real threats to your very existence. And those threats are not just individual. They can, there can be corporate threats as well. And in fact, the reality of, of, the, of the church is that all through the church's history, the church has been threatened. The church has, has faced opposition and, and, and threats from outside of it. It has also faced threats subtly inside of it. The evil one is doing everything possible to attempt to destroy the church. And I think when we read this, this incident from the garden as they come to arrest Jesus, I think the disciples are feeling that anxiety and that fear. This is real. These people have come. They have weapons. And there are lots of them. Far more of them than there are of the disciples. And they have come to take Jesus. And maybe to take them. And they feel the fear rising up within them. And into that fear, Jesus speaks. And Jesus says to the, those who have come to take him. He says, I told you I am he. And since I'm the one you want, let these others go. He did this to fulfill, John says, his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those you have given me. Now the question that comes to my mind is, why does Jesus need to say that? We're thinking over these Sundays in Lent about the words of Jesus in, in his encounters leading up to the cross. Why does Jesus feel the need to say You've, I, I've not lost one that you've given me. I think there is, in that statement, and in what happens here, this revelation of the power and the authority of Jesus. Under normal circumstances, uh, you, we have, there are all kinds of, of stories through the ages. Some of them, some of them are, are 
are myths. Some of them are, are historical. But in all of these stories, there are incidents where the, the, the hero and his followers are trapped. And in that moment, the hero realizes that there's no way out of it. And he, he goes to those who have trapped him and says, let me make a deal with you. If, if you, I'll surrender myself peacefully if you let these people go. And, and sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But the, the essence of that kind of encounter and that kind of dialogue is that all of the power about the followers rests in the hands of those who have come to arrest them and to take them. And I think Jesus wants us to understand here I think he wants the disciples to understand. I think he wants the people come to arrest him to understand that they're not in control of the situation. He is. He's not trying to make a bargain with them. He's not saying, look, uh, look, I'll come peacefully, but you have to let these guys go. Jesus is saying, I'm in control of this situation. I'm going to let you take me, and you're going to let these men go. It's not a negotiation it is simply a statement that Jesus makes. It is one more way in which he reveals his power and his authority in a moment when it looks like he has no power and no authority. The point of Jesus being arrested is not that Jesus can't do anything else. It is reiterated here once again that Jesus is not arrested because he has no other choice. He's arrested because he surrenders himself to the plan that he and the Father and the Spirit designed from the beginning of creation. And Jesus says, he makes a statement. Before they're ever released, he says, I've not lost one of them. And he doesn't. And he is revealing his power in this moment. I think this speaks to the idea that the church has wrestled with for centuries about what is often described as the security of the believer. And, and this is one of those stories that, that often gets brought up of, of Jesus doesn't lose anyone. And the reality is he doesn't. But I think the problem is we, sometimes we ask the wrong question. Sometimes we ask the question, we're asking the questions like, you know, can a person, uh, can, can anyone be lost to Jesus? Can does God let people go? And can, can people run away from him? But the real question is, is Jesus Lord of the church? Does Jesus have the authority and the power to keep his people? And there's one incident among many where Jesus says, yes. He is the Lord of the church. All authority and power is his. Jesus doesn't lose anyone. In fact, Jesus doesn't reject anyone. This, what Jesus says here goes back to, uh, to uh, John chapter 6, where Jesus says, that, however, the Father, those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. It's an interesting way for Jesus to say that. That he doesn't, Jesus doesn't lose anyone. I don't think Jesus even loses Judas. He simply gives Judas the freedom to walk away from him. He doesn't reject Judas. In fact, I think you get hints in this whole story that Jesus is sending a message to Judas, you don't have to do this. You can be rescued too with the other 11. I'm here for you. It's not too late. 
And for whatever reason, Judas decides that he would rather run his own way than follow Jesus. And Jesus gives people the freedom to do that. But not because he loses us. Those who want to be safe in Jesus are safe in Jesus. Because he is the Lord of all, including the church. Now, what we have to understand is that that the the power of Jesus to, to keep his people is not necessarily temporal. We're talking about the eternal nature of the church. Because the reality is, the ten, at least 10 of the 11 disciples who Jesus rescues here and says that he didn't lose a one of them, ten of, at least 10 of the 11 become martyrs for the sake of the gospel. Jesus is not saying, if you follow me, you'll have no pain. If you follow me, you'll have no difficulties. If you follow me, you'll not face any kind of struggles. If you follow me, then your life will be protected. What he's saying is, if you follow me, if you desire me, if your heart is for me, then eternally you will be safe in me. Because he's the Lord of all and the Lord of the church. And we can count on him. And we're safe in him. But this is not just about power. I think this is also about love. I think Jesus is also describing the depths of his love for these men who are willing to stand up for him, at least in the moment. Now, they're going to run in a little bit, but, but they have followed him, and he loves them. Sometimes we, we, we are susceptible to what some might call the worm theology, this mindset that says, well, we are just so lucky that God doesn't just blow us all away. We are so lucky that God doesn't just zap us because we're all worms. We're all terrible. We're all the worst that we could possibly be. And, and we're just fortunate that God doesn't give us what we deserve. Now, that may well be true, but that's not God's perspective of us. God creates us all in love. God, God, Jesus comes to us in love. The cross is about love, about grace. I mean, we see that when, when Jesus' words in John chapter 3, in the famous verse that we teach all of our Sunday school children, for God so loved the world, all the world, every person, everywhere, no exceptions. God so loves everyone that Jesus comes and gives his life that we might have abundant life in him. This is the love of God for us. Jesus does not just keep us safe in him because he has the power to do so. It's because he chooses to do so. He loves to do so. This is the heart of the Father. And it's not because the disciples are so faithful that they have earned his love. In fact, as I said, in a few moments, all of them are going to desert Jesus. Peter's going to deny even knowing Jesus. It doesn't change the love of God. Judas's actions of betraying Jesus doesn't change his love for Judas. 
or for any of the people who've come to arrest him, or for any of the people he encounters on the way to the cross. Jesus is love. And the heart of the Father is love. He doesn't keep us in him because he has to. He keeps us in him because he wants to. Because we are valuable to him. Because we are precious to him. Because he loves us. In chapter 13, as Jesus gathers the disciples around him in that upper room, the very first thing that John tells us is, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to the Father. And it says he had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. This is the heart of Jesus. This is the heart of Jesus for disciples who, who don't get what he's saying. This is the heart of Jesus for disciples who keep thinking that the kingdom is about putting themselves first and and getting the first place and and trampling over other people. This is the disciples, the love of Jesus for disciples who want to wipe out villages because they don't want them there. This is the love of Jesus for all of his creation. Because Jesus comes to reveal the heart of the Father. I love the story that Brennan Manning tells about Edward Farrell. He's a man who, he lived in Detroit. And he decided to take two weeks of his vacation to uh, take his favorite uncle, 80-year-old uncle, to Ireland, to their home, home country. And they spent two weeks in Ireland. He said the first morning they got up uh, in the darkness, they dressed silently and they went out to to the shores of Lake Kilcarney, and they, and they walked in silence along the shores of the lake. And as they walked, the sun began to rise. And he said his uncle stopped and he stood there. He said probably for twenty minutes, just watching that sun come up. He said and then all of a sudden. His uncle got this huge grin on his face, and he began skipping down the shores. 80-year-old uncle skipping down, down the sand, the beach of this lake. He, he did everything he could to catch up with him, and he ran to him, and he finally caught up with him. And he stopped him and said, Uncle Seamus, he said, what's going on? He said, you just seem so happy. Why? And his uncle turned to him, and he said, I am so happy Because I've been reminded again that the Father is so very fond of me. He said, my Father is so very fond of me. And I am convinced if if we could grasp the reality of that, it would change us completely. This is the heart of the Father. This is the heart revealed in Jesus. This is the message of the Holy Spirit to every one of us that we are loved. And we are are safe in Jesus. But this is not an incident that is ultimately 
about the followers of Jesus. It's not ultimately just about the disciples. It's about the witness of the church. I I think that there is something here that we see played out that is we also see visible in other stories of Jesus' life and ministry with the disciples. One of those that comes to mind is Mark chapter 4. And in this story, Jesus and his disciples are out on the Lake of Galilee late one night, and, and a storm comes up out of nowhere. And the disciples are panicked. They are, they are at their wit's end about what to do. The wind and the waves are, are, are rolling the boat, and they are sure they're going to drown. And they run to Jesus, and he's sleeping in the boat. They can't believe it. Jesus, what are you doing? And, and I, I imagine Peter is probably the one who goes down, grabs Jesus by the shoulders, and says, Jesus, wake up. We're about to drown. What are you doing sleeping? Don't you care? And Jesus sits up and looks at them, I suspect, with a little bit of exasperation and and sees the wind and the waves and simply says, peace, be still. And they stop. And then Jesus turns to them and he says, where's your faith? Where's your faith? And they turn, look at each other, and say, I don't know what he's talking about. And I think that's not just a story about Jesus, the ability, but about Jesus' ability to calm the difficult things in life, and he can. I think there's something deeper going on here. I think this is a story about one more attempt of the evil one to, to end the work of Jesus and to, and to end the witness of his people. If the evil one can, I mean, the the water is often a metaphor in the ancient world for chaos and evil. And they see this incident of coming up and they're wanting, I think the evil one wants to drown that boat to eliminate Jesus and just as much to eliminate the disciples. Those who spent all this time with him and those who will eventually be the rock foundation of the church. And if he can eliminate not just Jesus, but them, And he has eliminated God's witness in the world. And now we have a moment here in the garden where I think the evil one is wanting to do the exact same thing. I mean, human common sense would say that you don't want to just arrest the leader of this group. Let's get everybody while we've got them here. Let's end this thing once and for all. And Jesus says, that's not going to happen. Because I'm always going to have a witness. And it's going to start with these guys. God is always concerned about a witness in this world. All the way back to Abraham. God calls out Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to put my hand on your life and I'm going to bless you. But I'm not just going to bless you. I'm going to bless you so that you and your descendants, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And the church is not just about the church. It's one of our problems. One of the reasons why the church is, is often loses its way is because we think the church is about the church. 
We think it's just about us, and we become arrogant, and we become closed-minded, and we just want to circle the wagons and say, we just have to protect ourselves. And all the while, Jesus is saying, don't you trust me to protect you so that you can be my witnesses? The church is about our witness. It's about being a presence for Christ in this world. Jesus says in John 17, he says that during my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. He's praying to the Father. I guarded them so that not one was lost except the one headed for destruction, as the scriptures foretold. And I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe me through their message. Jesus, Jesus protects the church for the message. And sometimes it doesn't look like it. Sometimes it seems as though, as though the evil one has, has the church by the throat and there's nothing we can do about it and, and he's going to end it. And it's in those very moments that we have to believe that God is enough. That in his power and his love, he will preserve his remnant and his church as he has through all of his history. I mentioned to you a few weeks ago that I'd been reading a biography by, uh, of Hudson Taylor. And Hudson Taylor fascinates me because just a, an amazing man of faith and, and of the Holy Spirit's power in him. And, and when he was young, he got a vision, a passion for China. And once he went to China, he got a passion for inland China, places of China where they'd never heard the gospel. And God laid that on his heart. And it became his life mission to take the gospel to all of the places of inland China that had not been reached. And missionaries, others began to join his effort, hundreds of them and hundreds of them. And what I find fascinating is that there are so many times in this journey of taking the gospel to these places that they would run into roadblocks and walls and obstacles. And every time their strategy was the same. They would use every legal means possible to try to break down the walls and, and get around the barriers and the obstacles. And they did it as kindly and lovingly as they could, but they, they used every legal means. At the same time, they prayed fervently, long hours and intense prayer times together, and they listened to God. And sometimes the walls and the obstacles disappeared. And they gave thanks to God and they moved forward. But there were lots of times where they didn't. Where the obstacles in the walls didn't budge. And in those moments, they said, Lord, what do we do? And, what, and invariably what happened is that that obstacle created, pushed them in a different direction, a different strategy, a different place. And every single time, they looked back and said to themselves, this was far better than that. The progress of the gospel was much greater than we, had ever could, we could ever envision going our original way.
And they found that the, the obstacles and the opposition and even the persecution didn't mean that God didn't have a secure handle and control of the church and the kingdom. It just meant that God had different designs for how he was going to use them to bear witness of who he was in this world. I love the stories of places of the world where, where missionaries were, were forced out of a country. And there are all kinds of stories about this where missionaries are forced out. And, and I remember one particular story where there was a country where there were probably about a million Christians in this country. And the church was really doing quite well. And then there was an overthrow of the government and all the missionaries were forced out and the church was persecuted for decades. And about 30 years later, when the, when the country was opened up once again and, and people could go in and see what was happening, what they discovered is that a million Christians 30 years ago had become not 500,000 Christians or 20,000 Christians, but 30 million Christians, maybe even 70 million Christians. Because what looked like God not being in control of the church and losing his witness was not the case. And the question that continually confronts us is, do we believe that God is enough? Do we believe that God has control of his church? And that no matter what is happening in the world, no matter what it looks like, can we trust him? Frederick Buechner tells a story of what he describes as the, probably the lowest point of his life. His little girl was critically ill. And they had done everything they seemingly could do medically. They spent time praying and doing everything possible. And it didn't seem to make any difference. And one day in his deepest moment of despair, he got in his car and he just began to drive around. And he came to a place in the road where he pulled over and he just sat there crying out to God. He wasn't paying that much attention to the traffic that was going past him. But for some reason, at a moment, he looked up and he, and he saw a car go by and he looked at the license plate on that car and the license plate was one of those personalized license plates, and it had five letters on it, T-R-U-S-T, trust. And it's as if that license plate was a word from God to him. He said, I just had this assurance that no matter what was going to happen, I, I didn't see how things were going to turn out. But God was reminding me that I could trust him. He said, it was a turning point in my life. What's interesting is that he, he, he did some research and discovered who owned the car, owned that license plate. And it wasn't a pastor in town sort of sharing a witness of his faith. It was the trust officer at the local bank who is sending a message of, hey, bank with us. 
And he says, he, he, by, he found a day, introduced himself one day, and he told the man the story. And the next time the man needed a new license plate, he changed it. He took that one off, and he gave it to Frederick Buechner. And Buechner says, it's now sitting on my bookshelf. It's kind of battered, a little rusty. But he said, I have to tell you, it's one of the most holy relics I've ever come across. And when I read that story, I thought of something E. Stanley Jones said. It's not, oh, look what the world has come to. But rather, look what has come to the world. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that we can trust you, that you are enough. And we place ourselves and this church and your church around the world in your hands, knowing that you are good and loving. And Almighty, give us grace to trust you. Amen.